Today we start a new series on the doctrine of Christ, um, Christology. And I don't know how many parts there will be. We'll have to figure that out as we go. We'll we'll see. But uh, what I wanted to do this afternoon is set the stage for how we're going to study the doctrine and why we're going to study the doctrine. So hence the, the, the title, Why Study Christology and How? Christology, of course, the the person, the work uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are many different aspects. All of them are extremely important. But why is it important? Uh, Jesus himself, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, said this. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's nothing more important than knowing what it is required, what's implicit in this truth called eternal life. And the Lord Jesus himself said that eternal life is knowing the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So the goal in, in this study, and there, there's a tendency sometimes in doctrinal studies um, to approach it as an academic endeavor, and it is an academic endeavor in a sense, but it's far more than that. The, the goal uh, that is on my heart, that's I'm sure on your heart as well, as we study the doctrine of Christ, is to love him more, is to love the Lord Jesus more and more and more. A book that has been very helpful to me, and um, I highly encourage you if you're, you're a book reader, uh, Mark Jones, uh, who's a Puritan scholar. Uh, he's a pastor in the Vancouver area, as I recall correctly. Um, a book called Knowing Christ, and the title is intentionally similar to a book by J.I. Packer that was written probably 20 years ago or more called Knowing God. And um, the whole concept is to know Christ, uh, to worship him, to love Jesus more. And so what he says, this is an excerpt, uh, and, it, and it really frames, I think, the, the way in which we approach this study. The goal is to look at the person of Christ and to love him more. We can only love him more by knowing him better, which takes us beyond conceptual to relational knowledge. When we use the term know, in our parlance, it has sort of a cognitive conceptual aspect to it. But the Bible uses the word know in a very deep and personal way. And to know in the same paragraph, as Scripture uses it, and the way we'll be using it uh, in terms of knowing Christ is to set one's affections. It it implies intimacy. It implies love. It implies uh, all of those uh, aspects that are very, very personal. And so it is conceptual, but it is way more than that. It is certainly to set one's affections upon the the person uh, that we are studying. And so his admonition, and my admonition as well, is to approach this study with wide open hearts, longing to know Christ who first knew us. In an excerpt from his book, he said, if, and this goes back to John 17, verse 3, the passage I read at the, way, at the opening. If eternal life means knowing God and his Son, Jesus Christ, 
then the child of God must understand what it means to know him. Knowing him as apprehending his person and works as revealed in the scriptures involves not only an understanding of who he is, but also a fuller knowledge of his mind and his will. Our faith and obedience fix, fix themselves on the person of Christ as we come more and more to think his thoughts after him and perform his will in subjection to him. So if you're looking at an objective of where we're going in this study, it is indeed to think his thoughts after him and to love him more and to perform his will in subjection to him. Sam Storms asked a question, and so it's a penetrating question that I've reflected on. Are you so much, am I so much in love with Jesus, so utterly enthralled with the transcendent beauties of our Savior, so swallowed up in the adequacy of the Son of God in all things, that nothing appears so sweet to us as obedience to his commands? It's really looking at the fervor of what it means to love Christ. And then John Hanna, a professor that, that taught at the seminary I attended, Dallas Theological Seminary, wonderful man, speaking of obedience to the Lord Jesus, he said it's, it's inconceivable, and I think we realize this, that a person could fall in love with the Redeemer in the biblical sense and not long to be conformed to the object of that affection. So to know Christ, to love him, means that there will be a a heartfelt desire, a commitment to to do what pleases him, to obey him with the wholeness of our heart. Top of page two, Colossians three, uh, a passage that speaks to our time, it speaks uh, very importantly about priorities. Uh, the, The apostle Paul is speaking about where we should set our affections. And he says, if we've been raised up with Christ, and that if is, it implies the reality of, of the assumption, since, you could say, since we have been raised up with Christ, and we have, if we are in Christ, we have been buried with him, and we have been raised with him. Since that is true, that we should keep seeking. Now, it's not a one and done aspect, it is ongoing, it is intense. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It is essential that we get this, that we absolutely are fascinated with, obsessed with, occupied with Christ that our hearts and our minds are occupied with Christ. We, we live in times where there are innumerable things that are competing for our attention. The news, the, the, the constant news cycle, um, social media, um, just mundane conversations uh, that really have nothing to do with, with the preeminence of Christ. Just any number of things crowd into our lives. And every single one of those distract us from Christ. Every single one of them does. That doesn't mean that we live in a vacuum, that we don't know what's going around, uh, surrounding us. We do. We need to be cognizant of what's happening. But like a GPS device or a compass, our, our arrow should constantly be redirecting after we're distracted back to Christ. That should be like the, 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 the pole star for us, Christ. We should always be recalibrating to Christ throughout the day. The reason I say that is because Second Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says this, we all with unveiled face, and the point he's making is that 
as we know Christ, we no longer, we, we have the Holy Spirit who gives us clarity of understanding of Christ. Beholding is in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and that's the key, beholding the glory of Christ, or being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, and that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Reformers and those who followed in their, their path pointed to two aspects, two benefits of Christ. One of them was justification, the second one was transformation. We are being transformed into Christ. We are being conformed into his image, and that takes place through progressive sanctification. It is a process that any true believer is undergoing, and the end goal is to be conformed to Christ. Beholding Christ is absolutely essential to that undertaking. It, it is indispensable to that. That's what Paul says. And, but there's a, a, a warning, a caution, and I, I think of this anytime I talk about a, a subject as important as knowing Christ, I, 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 my mind goes back to the church at Ephesus, a wonderful church. It was uh, in AD 54, uh, founded by the Apostle Paul. You can read about that uh, in Acts 19. He taught there three years, the, the Apostle Paul himself, teaching, preaching, indoctrinating, discipling the saints, building up the elders in the church at Ephesus. Three years, three years that he was there. And then he, he gathered them together as he, he, he departed in a very heartfelt, very moving time when he, when he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And he warned them that there would be those who would be coming from without and those who would be coming from within that would seek to subvert their faith uh, that happens in a variety of ways. And then about 30 years later, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, while he's on the exile island of Patmos, writes the book of Revelation. And one of the letters to the seven churches, and it's the first one, Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, etc., the very first one in Revelation 2, he says, I know you, this is Jesus saying, I know your deeds, and, and I, I just underlined all of the things that are, are, are laudable, that are positive, that are beautiful about the church. Your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you find them to be false. You have perseverance. You've endured for my sake. have not grown weary, but we can't stop there. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It is possible to know much about Christ and to have our love for him grow cold. And that's what happened. This was a group that had been discipled personally by the Apostle Paul for years. And somewhere in that process, their minds, their hearts became distracted. They lost their first love. And he tells them that there's really a very simple but a, a probing way to deal with it, and, and that's to remember, repeat, and redo. To remember from whence you have fallen. Repeat the, and to repent of, of those things. To go back to them and to do those things again. To, to return to your first love. They had lost their first love. They'd become distracted from love for Christ. They knew much about Christ. Their doctrine was solid. You can see that. They, they, were, they were not tolerating falsehood. They were, were testing people who made claims about themselves. They were standing, but, but they, they were doing things for Christ, but their love for him had grown cold. That is entirely possible. It, it happened in the church at Ephesus. Warren Wiersbe says this, the local church is espoused to Christ. 
But there's always the danger of that love growing cold. Like Martha, we can be so busy working for Christ that we have no time to love him. Christ is more concerned about what we do with him than for him. Labor is no substitute for love. He's, and by the way, he's not drawing a, an antithesis between doing things for Christ and loving him. He's simply saying that deeds are not the same as love. To the public, the Ephesian church was successful. To Christ, it had fallen. I, think, I take that to heart. Thomas Vincent, uh, the Puritan uh, who lived in the 17th century, 1634 to 1678, a relatively short life, top of page three, he wrote a, a, a wonderful, beautiful book, The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. And he said this, Our Savior sent an epistle from heaven to the church at Ephesus, wherein he reproved her because she had left her first love and threatened the removal of her candlestick. He would take away her light if she did not recover her love. And he goes on to say, The life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are holy without the nature of Christians. We may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power of godliness. Give me your heart is the language of God to all people. Give me your love is the language of Christ to all his disciples. Love to Jesus is maintained and continued in its warmth and fervor by frequent meditation on his adorable person, his dying love, his infinite excellence, and his preciousness. If we lose sight of him as the spring of all our happiness and of all the ineffable glories, this is a different author who's saying this, John Fawcett, an 18th century guy. If we lose sight of him as the spring of all our happiness and of his ineffable glories, the fervency of our love for him will be abated. The point that he's making is that frequent, continual, perpetual meditation upon the person and work, the beauties of Christ, the glories of Christ, are, what, are essential to loving him, to knowing him. It is, it is not something that is engaged in on an intermittent basis. I remember back in 2010, I attended the very first conference I've ever been to uh, at Puritan Reform Seminary, and I was attracted to the title of the conference. It was called The Beauty and Glory of Christ, and I've been to every one of those conferences except for two. One of them, I had COVID, and the other one, Diane, had a medical procedure, and I needed to be home. So, but uh, other than that, I've been there every year. And I'd really never focused on a, a conference solely devoted to the beauty and glory of Christ. It was life-changing for me. I, I, it, it was truly life-changing. J.C. Ryle says, No worldly man can think much about Christ unless Christ is pressed upon his notice because he has no affection for him. The true Christian has thoughts about Christ every day that he lives for this one simple reason that he loves him. Our thoughts go after our love. If we think about that, what directs our thoughts, if we're, if we're left to some task that doesn't immediately occupy our mind, and we all live our lives in day-to-day. We have things that we need to accomplish. We have work we need to do. We have jobs we need to perform. But the question is, where does our heart gravitate when something else isn't occupying our mind? When we're left with sort of that time on our hands and, and our mind begins to wander, does it wander to Christ? Or does it wander to to someone, something else? And as I reflected on that, I I went to a hymn that that I've known well, and I changed the words. It's it's 
the, the name of the hymn is We Have Not Known Thee As We Ought. And it's really a, a series of prayers. It, it, if you look at these stanzas, and I'll just touch on them very briefly, it begins with a, a confession. You've heard the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. There are two aspects, the, the confession and the supplication that occur in each one of these stanzas. And it begins with confession. And I changed it from we to I, not because I'm trying to be an editor of a, of a long-standing hymn, but because sometimes when we confess and we say we, there's a way of displacing things and generalizing things. And I said, you know, I need to say I. I have not known thee as I ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. And here is the confession, the things of earth have filled my thought, and trifles of the passing hour. And if ever there was an apt description, that is it, the trifles of this passing hour. And then supplication, Lord, give me light, thy truth to see, and make me wise in knowing thee. Well, there's a number of stanzas, and we won't go through every one of them, but the stanza three I also resonated with. I have not loved thee as I ought, nor cared that I am loved by thee. Thy presence I have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. And then supplication, Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love thou art. I, I commend this hymn to you. It's a, it's a good hymn for private meditation, and it, it is a hymn of confession and supplication. And, and for me, it, my, my heart resonated with every single one of these stanzas. And it... And it I realized I, I need to be much more, I must be, not need to be, I must be much more intentional about meditating on the person and work, the beauty of my Savior. Because that's what, that's, if, I lo- if I love Jesus, I will meditate upon Jesus. My thoughts will inevitably gravitate to him. They, they will. They think about what, what do you love in your life, in your heart, in your, it draw, it, it's drawn to those things. If we love Jesus, our hearts will be drawn to him. Well, I mentioned earlier that Mark Jones wrote this book, Knowing Christ, intentionally drawing on a title by a book by J.I. Packer. And in the um, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, he, he has a metaphor that I, I found helpful. I read it many, many years ago. But it, he uses a picture of a parade, if you will, and you've got these people in the parade, and then you've got those who are sort of on a balcony watching what's going by and they're observing. They're not in the parade, but they're watching the parade. And he describes them as balconeers and travelers. And so you can just skip this. I'll just describe this for you. But he makes the the vital distinction between the balconeer would be someone who knows about what's taking place. The traveler is the one who's actually engaged, and they know what's taking place. They're in it. It's, It's their life. To study Christ is not to be a balconeer. It's not to sit in a detached way and study the doctrine in, a, in an impersonal way. It's with our heart to be fully engaged, our lives to be fully changed, our consciences to be pricked by our need to be more intentional about loving Christ. It's to be transforming. If you're going to be a traveler, you've got to be in the game. And that's the essence of when we study Christology, we're studying the most precious doctrine of all. We're studying our Savior. And the goal is to love him more and more and more because that's what we'll do for all eternity in heaven. That's, that's what a true child of God does. Is he loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. 
Well, Packer, in his book, Knowing Christ, actually it was an excerpt from Mark Jones' book, Knowing Christ, he said this, Packer, they're, they're good, good friends, Packer's now with his beloved Savior. The Puritans loved the Bible and dug into it in depth, and they loved the Lord Jesus, who is, of course, the Bible's focal figure. They circled around him, they centered on him, they studied minutely all that Scripture had to say about him and constantly, conscientiously exalted him in their preaching, praises, and prayers. And then he had four questions, and these are good. These are heart-probing questions. Have we ever, up to now, worked our way through any book, any study, that displays our Savior as the brightest lights in the historic Reformed firmament have viewed him? Have we, have we really focused with that degree of it? That's why we're doing this, by the way. That's, a, that's the goal of this. Have we ever formed the holy habit of contemplating Jesus in solitude when we're not occupied with something else? Have we really, allowing scripture passage after scripture passage to show us his many-sided glory and to draw out from us the, the adoration that is our proper response? Do we cultivate awe in the presence of the one who calls us to believe his brothers and sisters and who once took the place of each one of us under the unimaginable horrific reality of divine retribution for our sins? Do we often make a point of telling ourselves and telling him how lost we would be without him? Or are our minds as Christians always on other things? Do we constantly acknowledge the presence of Christ who through the Holy Spirit keeps his promise to be with us always, whether we cherish his gracious and triumphant companionship or not? Those are heart-probing questions. Do we, do we really, have we intentionally engaged in a study? And when I was asked to teach this study, I thought, okay, this, I began, the more I began to prepare for this study, it gripped my heart that this is really, of all the things that, that I've ever taught, probably the, one of the most important, if not the most important, because it deals with the central person of all of Scripture. It deals with the per- central person of my life. It deals with the central person of all eternity. It's dealing with Jesus. And, and, and it, there's nothing that is more important than the doctrine of Christ. Well, Mark Jones uh, here, he's talking about what does it mean to fix our hearts on Christ? We've, we've talked about that. We've said that's something that needs to be happening, must be happening. And he says there's few places in the scriptures where the glories of Christ are more clearly set forth than in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, set forth in Colossians 1. Verses 15 to 20 ought to be stamped firmly on our minds, memorized, etched into our spiritual DNA, and daily applied. So I've reproduced that passage for you, and I've spent time this last week reading this passage over and over and meditating upon it, and I am in the process of, me- of memorizing it, and I want it to be stamped into my mind, into my soul. I want to be completely occupied with this because it talks about the Colossians. The, 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 that epistle was all about the, the supremacy of Christ in all things. Others had come into the church at Colossae, and they talked about secret knowledge and things they needed to know. And Paul said, no, if you've got Christ, you've got everything you need. He, he is supreme overall. Colossians 1 talks about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, the agent of all creation, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him 
and for him. He is the agent of creation and he is the end goal of all creation. He is before all things and in him all things hold hold together. He sustains all that is. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now that passage is rich. And I won't be expositing that passage, but I'm just simply using that because I've, I've begun to memorize this passage. And, that, and Mark Jones makes a good point. He, he says that this ought to be stamped on our minds, memorized, etched into our spiritual DNA, and daily applied. But then he goes on to say, if these words cannot excite us to live for Christ, put us firmly in our place, cause us to desire to know Jesus better, stir preachers to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, then we have arrived at the peak of God's revelation concerning his son while failing to see the king in his beauty. And that is the last place we want to be. He says there's an alternative, and he cites Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a a, a delightful Puritan. He was actually exiled because of of the religious authorities in his day, and he went back to a a place where he could minister, but he loved his congregation, and he wrote letters to them, wonderful letters, love letters to his congregation. You can purchase the letters of Samuel Rutherford. There's a small book that's been published by Banner of Truth, and the foreword is by Sinclair Ferguson. It's called The Loveliness of Christ, and it's excerpts from his letters, and they are sweet, sweet letters. Samuel Rutherford said this, I I counsel you to think highly of Christ and of free, free grace more than you did before, for I know that Christ is not known among us. I think that I see more of Christ than I ever saw, and yet I see but little of what may be seen. Oh, that he would draw by the curtains and that the king would come out of his gallery and his palace that I might see him. That's his thirst. That's his knowledge. That's his passion. I want to see more and more and more of Christ. I Believe me, he knew much of Christ, and yet he said, I know little of what I need to know. I want to know much, much more. Top of page 7, at the end of that first paragraph, he says, Oh, that I could come near to kiss his feet. To hear his voice, to feel the sweet, to feel the smell of his ointments, but oh, alas, I have little, little of him, and I long for more. That is a man whose heart pounded to know more about Jesus Christ. And he loved Jesus dearly, and he said, I don't love him nearly as much as I, I want to, as I should, as I will. Well, why did he says I long for more? And so Colossians 3, it just is, is this admonition to set our minds on things above. That little word set is an interesting word. I looked at where it's used, and it's also used in Matthew 16 when the Lord Jesus said that he had to go to Jerusalem and be persecuted, tried, tortured by the religious authorities, be crucified. And Peter said, no, Lord. Those are two words you never want to have in juxtaposition with each other. No, Lord. Um, And then Jesus said to him, Peter, you are setting your minds on the things of Satan, not on the things of God. Setting your minds. And Philippians 2, Apostle Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the the word that he uses is set your mind on on Jesus. 
And when, so when, when Paul tells us in Colossians 3 to set our minds on the things above, he's talking about to be preoccupied. He's talking absorbed by. It's our mindset. It, it, it governs our life. It's, it's not a casual acquaintance. It's, it's an intentional focus. And that's what Paul is saying. All of those things, our mindset, our focus, our obsession, has to be on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. John Owen, the Puritan, why do we study Christology? He said, beholding the glory of Christ. And this was a, from one of his most wonderful books, The Glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that believers are capable of in this world or even in that which is to come. It is by beholding the glory of Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3, beholding the glory of Christ, that we are transformed gradually into his image and brought into the eternal enjoyment of it. He goes on to say, Our present comforts and future blessedness depend on this. This is the life and reward of our souls. Well, Mark Jones, going back to this book, Knowing Christ, said this. He said, Paul considered everything as dung in comparison with knowing Jesus. That's a strong statement. Uh, it, 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 there's many things that occupy our minds, aren't they? And yet, the, the, the Apostle Paul, for all of the things in life, he said they're utterly nothing. They're, they're wasteful compared to knowing Christ. Nothing is more important than knowing Christ. And, and again, hearken back to what we said earlier about what to know Christ is not a casual acquaintance. It's not just a cerebral uh, acquaintance. It is to set one's affection upon. It is to be absorbed by, to, to be uh, encompassed by the object of that affection. Paul's desire on earth was that I may know him, Philippians 3.10. And this desire of Paul was a direct answer to Christ's prayer for all of his people in John 17, verse 3. That's where we started. That the Father would give his people eternal life, which is to know God and his Son, who was sent into the world to save sinners. There's a, this last statement and it's a penetrating one. It's by Mark Jones as he's reflecting on this. How often we cut Jesus in half, wishing to know that we are saved and that all is well with our destiny, but forgetting that to be truly saved means that we must know him. And the point he's making is that we can easily become so obsessed with the gift and lose sight of the giver. The gift is salvation. The giver is the Lord Jesus Christ who took on human flesh, utterly abased, suffered great pains on our behalf, literally experienced the wrath of the Father in our place as our substitute. That's our giver. The gift is eternal life. He came so that he could redeem us. He took on human flesh so that he could purchase his bride. And he loves his bride. And he can't wait to be reunited with his bride in heaven. And so that's, that's really what should be occupying our minds. And, and Samuel Rutherford, top of page 8, on his gravestone, it's in St. Andrews. Diane and I have been there. We've seen this gravestone. This is a description of, of Samuel Rutherford. He said, true godliness adorned his name. He did converse with things above, acquainted with Emmanuel's love. Emmanuel is God with us, Jesus most constantly he did contend until his time was at an end. Then he won to the full fruition of that which he had seen in vision. That's what it's saying is faith became sight. 
That's exactly what that's saying. Jesus was the absolute adoration of Samuel Rutherford's heart, but he knew little of him. He couldn't wait to know more of him. And the great reward is he's now face to face with the one he loved. And that's true of any true believer. That should be our obsession to be face to face with Jesus. Well, Samuel Rutherford during his life wrote this. That was what was written about him after he went home to be with the Lord. But during his life, he wrote this. Put the beauty of 10,000 thousand worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all the trees, all the flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Wrap it all together. What a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. The majesty, the beauty of Christ. Take all of the worldly beauties and pleasures that we know, roll them up together, multiply that by some innumerable fraction, and then compare that to the beauty of Christ. And he says it's not even comparable. Not even comparable. And then there's this comment by, put, by Mark Jones. He says, put all the pleasures of life. And then he lists all of these things that, that occupy our lives. Job, recreation, music, sports, entertainment, food, technology. What excellent joys they are. And yet such joys pale in comparison with the delight of knowing Jesus and basking in communion with his person. Not just his work, his person. Is Christ the drop of rain he's hearkening back to Samuel Rutherford? Or is he the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths? And so we think about Christ. We are obsessed with Christ. And top of page 9, speaking of Christ. This is, this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by Mark Jones again. Of all the human desires that he retained, that Jesus retained as he entered his glorified state in heaven, few exceed his desire to know his people. That's John 17. How can a good husband enjoy life apart from being together with his wife? That's how Jesus, we are his bride. We are his bride. He's purchased us. As he uttered his high priestly prayer in John 17, he made this remarkable statement, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And then this next paragraph, he desires to be with us because he knows us and that that demands that one day he will call us home to be with him. Ultimately, this happens not because of something like a disease or fatal accident, but because the Father has answered the prayer of His Son. There is for Christ something lovely, enticing, and satisfying in loving poor, sinful creatures as we are, who have nothing in us to commend ourselves except that we belong to Him. So when someone goes home to Christ, it's because the Father has answered, John 17, that they would be with Him where He is. We look at the second cause. We look at disease, accident, whatever the case may be. The the primary cause, the real cause is the the Father's saying, you can have the, the purchase that you made in your immediate presence. That's how we should look at these things. So Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, 
What will heaven be but seeing the glory of Christ? And I'm well aware that the Song of Solomon is viewed most often, at least today, as a, a, a marital uh, letter, a love of husband and wife, and it's very appropriately understood that way. But at the very least, we should draw this from the Song of Solomon, that, that our love for Christ should at least be as fervent as our love for our bride. And, and so what we have is a human template that gives us a taste for what our love for Christ must be. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. We should be able to say that about Christ. We should be able to say about Christ that he is the chiefest among 10,000. With the outcome, page 10, where does all this lead in our lives? The outcome is that, as Paul says, that we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. There are many, many ways that this will shape our lives. There are countless ways, but I've identified two. One of them is that love for Christ, as it is fueled by knowing him, studying him, meditating upon him, fixing our hearts intentionally, perpetually on him, will result in strength in two ways, in fighting worldliness. John Owen said this in that regard. He said, cultivate frequent and devout contemplations of the glory of Christ. Immense will be the benefit accruing to your soul. The mind thus preoccupied, filled, and expanded will be enabled to present a stronger resistance to the ever-advancing and insidious encroachments of the world about. No place will be found for vain thoughts and no desire or time for carnal enjoyments. You know what he's saying? He's saying, that the love of Christ will crowd out all of the lesser competing affections that are trivial. That's exactly what he's saying. The temptations really are appealing to our lower, our our base nature, our our fallen nature. It's, It's appealing to our propensities to sin. And to the extent that we are captivated with Christ, our love for him, will make the, the, the attractiveness of all these trivial, carnal, fleshly things seem utterly reprehensible in our sight. Why would I want to do that when I've got Jesus? Why would I want to do anything that would tarnish my communion with the one who came to give his very life for me, to die for me, and can't wait to have me in heaven? That's what he's saying, that that love for Christ will make the appeal of this world's affections to be utterly inconsequential. And it will. We will not do that perfectly, of course. But if you want to know how to fight sin, love Christ. Be obsessed with Christ. It will also give us strength in affliction. Joel Beakey wrote a book, How to Deal with Affliction, and and he he sent it to me one time when I was dealing with COVID. He he mailed me a copy of it. You can actually get a copy of it downstairs. But but most of it dealt with meditating on Christ. He he wrote it many years ago, and it was his meditation on, on how... To, to fuel strength and affliction, and, and really is to be obsessed with Christ, to be meditating upon Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 talks about that we, are, we have an, a, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Verse 4. And then in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It, 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 it's, Peter is talking about 
Affliction is inevitable, and yet this is a short time. Eternity is forever. Life is short. What do we have to look forward to? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, purchased for us by our Savior. And as I began to reflect upon what it means to love Christ and to have strength in affliction, I was reminded of a, a man that I met a number of years ago. His name is Johnny Faris, and he, um, uh, he, he was at Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Boca Raton. I, I saw him. There's a picture of Johnny. Um, and then a number of years later, I went to his home, and I spent time with him. Um, to be brief, his biography is on the following page. Uh, but he was born with spinal muscular atrophy and essentially um, quadriplegic um, for his life. And for the last 10 years of his life, couldn't sit up. And, uh, but he taught himself how to do uh, coding of websites, and he did everything by voice command. And he maintained a website, a wonderful godly website called farisi.com. And, and so I got to know him online. And uh, I was in the South Florida area, and I said, I'd love to meet this guy. And, uh, and I did, and the Lord was gracious. I saw him shortly before he went home to be his, with his Savior. Page 11, about two-thirds of the way down. This is his testimony. He says, In light of my physical condition, I'm often asked the old age, age-old question, How can an all-powerful God of love allow you to suffer in this way? Surely the Bible says that God always does what is right. Yes, he does. I have come to see that suffering is one of the many ways in which God demonstrates his unfailing love to those who come to put their trust in him. Writing out of his own painful experience, the psalmist says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. I gladly endorse every word of that testimony. Among other things, suffering empties us of pride and self-dependence and makes us realize our complete dependence upon God. When we reach the point where we have nowhere to turn except God, we begin to get a clearer view of who and what he is. Day by day, I am discovering more and more of his wisdom, love, and grace. He dictated all of that. He he put this on his website by voice recognition. Top of page 12. Um, Just in in brief, let me say this. As you read his biography, his little testimony, and you say, how could a person be that strong in affliction? How could a person have that much of a godly mindset in affliction? And the answer is actually very straightforward, his preoccupation with Christ. How do I know that? Because I bolded with, for you at the bottom, uh, in the middle of page 12, what he personally wrote. When I struggled to escape from his grace, he drew me to himself. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have, never brother such a kinsman, never spouse such a husband. No sinner ever had a better Savior than Jesus. No mourner a better comforter. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty he is my riches, in sickness my health, in darkness my son. Jesus is to me all grace and no wrath, all truth and no falsehood. And of truth and grace he is full, infinitely full. If you want to know how a person could rejoice in the midst of of affliction, it's because he he was absorbed with Christ. He was completely consumed with Christ. And like Samuel Rutherford, I think Johnny would have said, and I know he would have said, I know Jesus, and yet I know little, I want to know much more. 
And for, for Johnny and for any true believer, faith becomes sight when they are immediately in the presence of Christ. And, and that's, the, that's what we have to look forward to. So how do we study Christ? We, why are we studying Christ? We study Christ because he is the one who is most worthy of our affection, most worthy of our adoration, the one who's come to rescue us from sin, the one who's purchased us by his own blood, the one who awaits us in heaven, the one we will see face to face for all eternity, the one we will worship in direct immediate presence of our risen Savior. And how do we do it? We, we do it, and I would encourage us all daily, daily, as we go through the attributes, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, each day pick one of those aspects or a verse dealing with Christ and meditate upon that verse every day. And may your mind be drawn inevitably, inescapably to, to Christ, and you will find that you will love him more. You will find that he will be the chief of your affections. And that's really the, 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 the life of a true Christian is to love Jesus more and more. So that's, I wanted to go through how we're going to study Christ and why we study Christ. And it's, we don't want to be the balconier watching. We, we're a traveler. We, we are in this uh, to gain a more firsthand knowledge of Jesus and his beauty and his glory, his majesty, his loveliness, and to love him more. To love him more. So may that be our affection, may that be our occupation, may that be our obsession as we study Christ, as we study scriptures, that we would know Christ and that we would love him more.